Sorry, everyone. So yeah, so the reason um, I selected those two readings, there wasn't anything about my wife or anything. <laughs> Sarah was laughing when you were reading that first passages. But the, um, the gist of those passages was really about, um, that we're kind of looking at this morning, is the importance of sound doctrine. And you notice that in the pastoral epistles, so they're the, the epistles that Paul, Titus, Timothy, Paul was writing to help encourage Timothy and and Titus about um, how to pastor, how to care for the flock, how to care for the church and to the elders as well and the the leaders, but the whole church in particular. Um, But yeah, it's really letters of how to do pastoral care. And and this idea of sound doctrine just keeps coming up time and time again in in these pastoral epistles. In fact, in... 1 Timothy verse four, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 16, Paul tells us, uh, is talking to Timothy, he says, Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. So all through the Bible, we see that doctrine and godly living are closely tied, and that in fact, good theology doesn't necessarily, but um, bad theology leads to a bad lifestyle, but good theology can lead to a, a godly life, a life where the fruit of the Spirit is even of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc. So good theology is important, as, as we're going to look at. So that's why we're doing this um, Statement of, of Faith series. Um, and we're starting with the first three. Now, you, um, you may not have seen this, because as Craig said, it wasn't... It um, hasn't been on our website, but Sarah this afternoon is going to check it up on the website. So, and at the back, if you're interested what the statement of faith is, like, I mean, it'd be a good idea to read it, right? Because if you disagree strongly with all the points, then maybe we're not the right church for you, right? So it's always a good thing to actually read when you're checking out a church or thinking of going to a church. But um, um, the statement of faith is down on the back as well, if you want to grab it on the way out to have a look at it. So um, let's, now, the cool thing about our statement of faith is like 90 Five percent of it is what all Christians everywhere believe about these things, right? So it's not got a whole lot of things that are specific. There's a few things that are specific to our particular um, church, but but ninety-five percent of this and a hundred percent of what I'm sharing this morning, these first three points, is actually what all Christians everywhere have believed about these matters. So that's pretty cool. So let's have a look at the first um, one here. Bring up that first one, thank you. So the first um, one we're looking at is about the Bible. So we believe that all scripture is infallible, divinely inspired of God, without error in the original manuscripts, and is the only true guide for Christian faith and practice. So let's look at a verse that this doctrine is based on. Um, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we see in this verse um, that all scripture is God-breathed, right? And since God cannot lie, would you agree? He cannot make a mistake because he knows everything, right? Then that follows, therefore, that the scriptures themselves are also 
infallible or they're without error in their original manuscripts. And this truth, you might say, well, how is this practical? How does this apply? Well, this truth is so important because it means we can trust the Bible, right? We can actually trust what we read. When the Bible tells us about salvation, how we're saved, we can trust that what it says is true, right? When it tells us about who God is, we can trust that it's a, it's not, it hasn't been distorted by human biases or, or different cultures that it was brought in. It's true. It's true what it tells us about God. It tells us about what, how, what the best way to live our lives on this planet Earth is, right? We can have full confidence that the Bible is true and all what it um, t- uh, teaches us um, about life, about Christianity, about spirituality, about, about everything. So that's, I think, a pretty awesome point for the first point there. Um, secondly, in that statement, it also, the last part of it says um, that the scripture is the only true guide for Christian faith and practice. And I think this is really important because, um, you know, the scriptures are our final authority, right? Ultimately, it doesn't really matter what um, I as, the, as a pastor or Craig as a pastor or the elders say, it's what the Bible says that's our final authority, right? By coming to a church, you're not ultimately, like leadership is important, we're going to talk about that later, but ultimately our, our final authority isn't the leader. It's also not what works. It's also not pragmatism. It's the Bible that's the final authority, right? So, so I love it when someone comes up to me. It hardly ever happens, <laughs> but someone comes up to me and says, hey, Chris, have you thought about, you know, I heard when you're, we were preaching, and I'm I'm not sure about that. And what do you think of this verse, right? If they actually pulled me up on something I preached, I'd be overjoyed, right? As long as they're not doing it in a, in a nasty way. So please do, you know, because it's, it's not the preacher that's the final authority. It's the word of God itself. And I think it's even more important when we start to think about our own lives. Like how much do we, do we conform our lives to the word of God? And, and are we willing to be challenged, right? When someone comes with a new idea or maybe they're from a different Christian tradition and they say, hey, like, actually, have you thought about this? Have you thought about um, from the scriptures this? Or are we willing to have our beliefs, our practices, the way we do things, how we live our lives? Are we actually, at the end of the day, are we really willing to have them challenged from the word of God? Or are we just kind of stuck in a rut and just done Christianity the way we always have? And are we really informed by tradition and what people say to us rather than the Word of God. And so that's, I think, the real challenge here. Scripture is, um, as 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, it's God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training righteousness. You know, what are our options? If it's not Scripture that, that drives our understanding of church, how we do things, you know, it's so, it's so, it's so easy for it to just be whatever's popular, you know, or pragmatism, whatever works, or whatever gets people through the doors, right? Whatever makes them feel good so they keep coming, right? That's easy for that to end up becoming what drives it. But whether it's our feelings, whether it's our hearts, whether it's all our individual ideas about things, um, they're all flawed. But the Word of God is perfect, right? It's like double-edged sword dividing between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. So that's, remember that, go to a Bible-believing church and a church um, and I believe our church is, is one of those churches that puts the Bible as the final authority, not just our human traditions or the way we've always done things. So that's the first point, the Bible. Let's move on to what we're going to spend most of the time on, the Trinity. So point two of, of Agora's statement of belief, and like I said, both these statement of beliefs 
are believed by Christians everywhere. So let's read this one. We believe in one God, existing eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these three are the one God, having precisely the same nature and attributes, but distinct in role and activity. I want to come back to that, but let's look at the third point, which is definitely related. We believe that the Father is fully God, that his fatherhood is eternal and personal, and that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus and of all who believe in Christ. So let's, let's dive into a little bit more for um, the rest of our time together this morning, the second point. And basically this is explaining what we call the doctrine. And doctrine just means belief, right? <laughs> basically that's what doctrine means. And same with theology. Theology is, means um, theos is the Greek word for God and ology like, you know, whether it's biology or whether it's, um, um, any ology just means the study of, right? So it's the study of God, that's all theology means. So, um, so this doctrine or theology of the Trinity um, is a distinctly Christian belief that God is three persons and one God. And each member of the Trinity is co-equal and co-eternal. So notice in our statement of belief that the equality of the three persons is actually inferred by the fact that they have the same nature and attributes. But, it says, they are distinct in their role and activity in relation to creation. So, so what does that distinct in role and activity mean? Well, each member of the Trinity is involved in all the work of God, but each takes a different role in relation to that work. For instance, if we think of um, salvation, for instance, the Father sent the Son, right? That was the Father's role. The Son came, and willingly, mind you, <laughs> it wasn't like the Father forced him to. So the Son willingly came and died for our sins, right? That was the Son's part in our salvation. And then the Holy Spirit applies that work of salvation to our hearts, right? He he changes our hearts when we're born again, and then he continues to change our hearts over time, which is called um, sanctification. So, so, yeah, every part of the Trinity, some, one member may take a more prominent role, but every member of the Trinity is involved in every work, and they, but they often have a distinct role in, in relation to humanity or creation. So... There's many verses, actually, that talk about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and actually apply a quality to each of them. And Craig's already, already read the one this morning, so we don't need to say heaps more about it, which is good because we've got a lot to get through this morning. So this is an amazing verse, one of my favorite Trinitarian uh, blessings in Scripture. And we'll read it again, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Notice that the blessing is from each member of the Trinity. This blessing from God is from each member there's an equality talked about there. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You know, we see this um, all through Scripture. We see sometimes it's just one or two, sometimes all three members of the Trinity mentioned, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Matthew 28, we have um, baptized in the name, singular, which is fascinating, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see this equality of the persons of the Trinity all through Scripture. Um, now, it's interesting. So the, the, doctrine of, the doctrine of the Trinity 
is the, is the most fundamental Christian belief. It's probably the most central belief to Christianity um, as it stands. But it's interesting, there's no one verse in the Bible that explicitly states the doctrine of the Trinity, right? So why do we believe it then? The early church actually found, when they looked at the theological data, that this construction of the doctrine of the Trinity actually had the best fit for the biblical data. You see, there's some really clear things in Scripture. One of them that we may look at next week when we look more about Jesus is that Jesus is God, right? That's very, he's fully God. We see that clearly from many, many Scriptures, right? But also, as we read in the Statement of Faith, I don't think anyone would argue this that believes in the Bible, but the Father is God, right? So if Jesus is God and the Father is God, but then the Bible also clearly teaches that God is one, how do we bring together those two facts that these different members, and, and we see the Holy Spirit as well as God, how do we bring these three people all testified to be God, but then God is one? And that's what the early church had to wrestle with. You know, um, some groups, including Jehovah's Witnesses, have rejected this doctrine, and other people claim that it's a contradiction by believing that us Christians believe in three persons and one God. I just want to read you a quote from an awesome theologian um, called Millard Erickson. And he points out that the doctrine of the Trinity is contradictory only if God is three at the same time as he is one and in the same respect as he is one. The The effort of Christian theologians down through the years has been to discern the difference in God being one and also being three, right? Now, if us Christians believe that in three gods and one God at the same time, that would be a contradiction, right? If we believe that God was one person and three persons in the same way at the same time, that would also be a contradiction. But it's not a contradiction because we believe in that God's different in the way that he's one and the way that he's three. I, we believe that he's one God, one nature, divine nature, but three persons. Um, so that's why it's not a contradiction. In fact, as um, has been mentioned earlier, um, the doctrine of the, of the Trinity is unique to Christianity. No other religion has a doctrine that even comes close to resembling it. The doctrine of the, Christian, of the Trinity actually sets Christianity apart from other monotheistic beliefs. That's beliefs that be, belief systems like Christianity believe in one God, um, like Islam and Judaism, right? So it actually sets not just Christianity apart from um, other world religions, but from other monotheistic, I believe in one God, religions as well. A.W. Tozer wrote this. He wrote, The doctrine of the Trinity, as I have said before, is truth for the heart. The fact that it cannot be satisfactorily explained, instead of being against it, is in its favour. Such a truth had to be revealed. No one could have imagined it. Right? No one could have dreamt up this doctrine of the Trinity. Right? No other religion that as Christians we'd have to say have elements that were somewhat man-made has, has anything like this. No one's come up with anything like this. Right? Why? Because it was actually revealed through the Scriptures from God himself that this is the way he is, that he is three persons and one God. Now, it actually took the early church, as I said before, Um, a few centuries to actually clarify and fully form the doctrine of the Trinity. And on the way, they encountered um, several inadequate 
ex explanations um, in, their, in their journey to understand how God is three persons and one God. Um, and these inadequate explanations, we call them heresies, right? Now you're going, oh, what the heck? Are we talking about heresies, right? Well, why? Well, a lot of beliefs, you know, Christians differ on. And it's not, not that, you know, we can all be right about a particular thing. One person's wrong or maybe no one's right. But, um, um, but you know, there are differences between Christians. But when it comes to the absolute fundamentals of the Christian faith, like the doctrine of the Trinity, like that Jesus was fully God and fully human, then when ideas creep in that distort those fundamental identity markers of Christianity, they, they turn into, those wrong ideas turn into what Christians have called heresies. Because they're so destructive, they actually destroy Christianity. They destroy, potentially, not always, necessarily, depending on how, how bad the heresy is, but it can destroy people's relationship with God. It can not lose their salvation, but it can, um, it can lead to people not coming into a saving relationship with God in the first place, right? It can detrimentally affect the church. And so distortions around the doctrine of the Trinity, because it's so crucial and foundational to Christianity and our understanding of who God is and salvation, are like that. So let's have a look at a few of them. So, um, you know, every time that a mistruth about the Trinity pops up, everyone thinks they've found this great original way, right, to interpret it. But since, I said, since the beginning of the Christianity, there have been these flawed attempts to understand this complex idea and reduce the mystery of God to something more palatable. No, so just to prepare you, you guys ready? We're go I'm going to look at two big words which might sound a bit out there to you guys, perhaps. But you will have actually heard um, them expressed before, but you might have not heard the big ideas, the, sorry, the big words, but you have heard the ideas. I'm just going to give them a name, right? So you ready? Everyone hold, hold their seats on. The first one is called Arianism, right? And this was one early attempt to explain the Trinity. Um, and it's also what Jehovah's Witness along the lines of what they believe today. And it said that Jesus is not fully God like the Father is, right? And this belief was named after this guy, Arius, who lived around 256 to 336 AD. And he was the first one to advance this idea. So this position holds that Jesus is not fully God like the Father is. For instance, we'll interpret John 1, verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the word was a God, which is not found in the Greek text at all. I love taking people to the Greek and showing them how it's a terrible translation, but they'll interpret that not Jesus wasn't fully God like the Father, wasn't, and the actual translation should be, in the beginning the word was with God, and the word was God, right? It had all the qualities and nature of, of God, um, but they would translate as a God, kind of semi-divine. Um, the other key thing here is that Arianism in the early church, this heresy, this offshoot of Christianity, um, also denies that Jesus, was etern that Jesus eternally existed with the Father before creation, right? That's its other flaw. And the problem with Arianism is that there's just so many Bible verses that talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, that talk about that he's fully God, and so many verses, in fact, that talk about his pre-existence, that he, that he created the universe and that he pre-existed the, um, all of creation. So that's, that's the real problem with it. Another inadequate explanation that the early church rejected was something called modalism. And this was the idea that um, 
that there is one God who is only one person, right? But who appears in three different forms or modes. And this explanation, on, on its plus side, it adequately explained how God um, was one, but couldn't adequately explain how he's three. And you might say, oh, Chris, this is all just old church history. Why are we talking about this in church on a Sunday morning? Um, well, there's actually a contemporary movement called Oneness Pentecostalism that believes exactly this. Um, so it's not, it's not something for church history. This is, there's many people that um, believe this today. You know, and Christians, as Christians that believe in the Trinity, we can often inadvertently fall into these heresies. Why? Because we often make the mistake of using analogies from our experience to help explain the Trinity. So even though we maybe don't hold these positions officially and say, this is what I believe, we can kind of fall into this kind of thinking when it comes to thinking about God. Um, For instance, have you ever heard this illustration, right? Have you ever heard the Trinity compared to a cloverleaf? right? A good Irish <laughs> illustration, the guy that came up with it, a long time in church history, right? The Trinity is like a cloverleaf. Think of a cloverleaf, right? But let me ask you, what happens to a cloverleaf when you pull one of the leaves off? Do you still have a cloverleaf? Yeah, you kind of do. It might not be three-headed cloverleaf, but you have a two-headed cloverleaf, right? Sorry, I should have said a cloverleaf with three bits, Right? And the problem here is that you can separate a leaf off and still have two leaves, right? But the problem, the problem here is that God is not like that. You can't separate um, the Son from the Father or the Holy Spirit and still have God because they all share the same um, divine life and nature and can't be separated. So this, heri- this heresy is what was fittingly called partialism, right? So that was one kind of distortion. And so all these analogies from our experience actually end up falling into one of these. What, what's some analogies you guys have heard for a little audience interaction? What analogies if you, you know, if someone, maybe it was at Sunday school, maybe it was at church. So what's one way that people have tried to use an analogy to explain the Trinity to you or that you've heard of? Shout it out. Oh, yep, steam, ice and water. Yep, yep, that's definitely one. And what do you guys think? What is the steam, ice, and water? What's the problem with that? We've actually just um, mentioned the heresy that one falls into. What, how do you think that one falls down? Yeah, it can't be all three at once. It's exactly that one that's on the screen right now, right? So this idea that um, the Trinity is like water, right, that can, that can appear in um, a liquid form or a solid form as ice, or a steam form, right? But the, the water itself, the same water, can only appear in one form at a time. It can't, it's not simultaneously existing in all three forms, right? So it's actually that illustration is actually, that analogy is actually falling into modalism. Um, what's some other ones people have heard? Yeah, mind, body, and soul. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's getting better, but still <laughs> it, it falls down. Have, I, I mean, I, I heard someone bring an egg before and like say the egg is, the yolk is like the father and anyway, that was kind of like again, the problem with parts, right? In fact, I heard someone get up and share um, a woman share, she said actually, the first thing she said is, lots of Christians are confused about the Trinity, but it's really simple. God is one person. 
So as soon as they said that, my alarm bell started going off because that's not cor correct. And, and then she said, it's really simple. It's like, my it's like my husband, right? He's one person but has three different roles, right? He's a husband, he's a father, and he's a son, right? So he's one person but has three different roles. What, what Hera said is that particular illustration fall into. Same one, modalism, right? So you get the idea. So there's these different kind of ways that all these analogies kind of fall down, really. So the problem with all these different analogies is they take something from creation um, and they liken it to God. Now, this is the problem. There's no thing like God and his triunity in all of creation. So every analogy from this creation is going to fall down. So it's actually best to just stick with the words one God, three persons, right? And I taught theology at a Bible college. It was one of my favorite things to teach for, for many years. And I always tell this to the students, in your essays, don't change the words. Don't. But they always did. They always changed. They couldn't stick with one God, three persons in the essay. They always had to change the words or come up with a weird analogy or something. Oh, don't do it because there's nothing like, um, you know. And so we've just got to resist that temptation, even, I think, if we're teaching it to children somewhat. We've got to maybe explain what, um, if we can, without confusing too much what three persons and one God or one nature means, but don't go to homely illustrations. But saying all that, you're going, oh, well, so is this, Chris, is this whole Trinity thing, is it just such a mystery that we can't even begin to comprehend it? Um, well, actually, it's interesting. Trinitarian theology, or thinking about how God's Trinity was basically non-existent from after the early church until the early 1900s. But then there was this massive revival of interest in this doctrine. And we've had many, many decades of people writing huge volumes to explore this mystery of the Trinity, because it's most certainly a mystery. But like I said, it's not a contradiction. It's actually a deep truth of the Christian faith that provides an anchor for all of our other beliefs. And so I just want to look at one theological model, if I haven't lost too many people in the room yet. And then we'll look at some practical application, I promise. But one useful model that I've found is to think of God as a complex of persons who are one being. And I'll expand upon what that means. You know, the Bible tells us that God is love, right? There's something fundamental about, it's a fundamental attribute of God. God is love. So love is actually... Um, the binding relationship between each member of the Trinity. Erickson, as you can see the quote up there, states that love is such a powerful dimension of God's nature that it binds three persons so closely that they are actually one. So have you thought about that? That actually you could think of the unity of the Trinity as love itself binding the members of the Trinity together. And if you think about this some more, the fact that God is love requires him to be more than one person, right? Love must have both a subject and an object, right, to truly be love, not be mere narcissistic self-love. Now, if, think about it. If God was only one person, then how could he have been love when only he existed before creation, right? If he was just one person, it wouldn't have been true love. It couldn't, the, the statement in the Bible that God is love couldn't actually quite be correct because there would have been no other persons if God was only one person for him to give love to and receive love from 
But if, but if God is love, as the Bible states, and three persons before creation, then the Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father before there was any other um, beings in the universe or universe in the first place. The Son loved the Spirit, etc. So God could express and experience this divine love between the different persons of the Trinity. Now, if you're like me and you love to really ask questions, maybe you've thought, why, why is the Trinity three persons, right? Why isn't it a biennity of two persons? Have you ever asked yourself that? Why is there three persons in the Godhead, not two? I mean, this is getting into some, some mystery territory, but thinking about it, there's actually a dimension of openness and extension found in love between three persons that's not found in a love relationship between two persons that's more closed by nature. That's not saying, I mean, God set it up for us to be married. We're not critiquing that in any way. <laughs> we're not marriages between a man and a woman. But what we're saying is there's something more open about three. And God, by nature, is a divine community of an open community. Um, so the idea of the oneness of persons of the Trinity is that of love. may seem incorrect, however, if we think in terms of imperfect and limited human love. So think about human love, right? It has certain limitations. What's some of the limitations of our human relationships, right? Because it's easy to think of persons, like it's easy to think of, you know, the father, like I've heard some crazy illustrations, um, but, you know, like the Trinity in a bar and the father is a guy with gray hair and the son is someone else and like, but that's kind of projecting our human experience onto the word person. When we're thinking of divine person, it's quite different, right? Humans, like our, as human persons, we're separated by our bodies, right? How do you know I'm Chris? Because you see my face and body shape, you know I'm Chris, right? How do I know you're Bob? Because I see the body of Bob, right? We know each other from the fact that we can distinguish each other, which is really useful, right? If we were just spirits, floating around, well, we couldn't see each other because it would all be invisible. It would be really hard to distinguish each other from one another. So having a body is very useful in human experience, I think, for lots of good positives. One of the downsides is, though, as a human being, our communication rate is limited to X words a minute. Right Now, I don't know how many people say I talk a little bit faster than normal sometimes, but, but sometimes I can talk really, really fast like this and tell you lots of things really fast. But it's still limited, right? I can increase the words per minute, but it's still a limited bandwidth of communication rate that I can communicate with you, agreed? Right? And it's not instantaneous. It takes time to get there. It takes time for your brain to process it, maybe even longer in a sermon like this, but it's limited, right? But God, on the other hand, isn't limited by a physical body. And thinking about how God will communicate, well, it's most certainly unlimited and instantaneous. He has unlimited and instantaneous bandwidth, if you will between each member of the Trinity, right? So that's quite a different person as a human person and how we operate, isn't it? Secondly, human, we have different experiences, right? That actually makes it quite easy for us to misinterpret each other, right? I mean, have you ever sat down in a discussion with someone and then you're just like, what is this person talking about? Anyone ever had that experience? Come on. Yeah, or you're just kind of losing track of where they're going. And often it can be because they're coming from a, a very different background. They've had di very different experiences. So their train of thought is quite different because they've been shaped by these different experiences, right? But did you know with God, and I know there's an exception if you're thinking about it now, we're going to get to that, but God, each member of the Trinity has actually experienced all that each 
other member has experienced, right? It's not just that, here's the crazy thing about God. Each member of the Trinity not only experiences what others are currently experiencing, but has also experienced all that each member has ever experienced, which is crazy when you think about it, right? Again, quite a different divine person to human person when it comes to God. Now, we'll talk about the exception in a minute. But the third one is this. If we want to think of this model of God as a complex of persons who are one being, as humans, we're naturally preoccupied with our own needs, right? We're kind of by default, not just because of the fall, but because also we're finite. We can't help but our needs are the ones, you know, when we're hungry, it's not we feel hungry, right? We don't, we find it hard to get off our own needs, right? And it, that actually makes it hard for us to empathize with others because I don't feel when Sarah's hungry, I don't feel that her hunger until she tells me, right? And then being a, a very much a work in progress, I may be uncompassionate to her hunger because I'm not particularly feeling hungry at that moment, right? So us humans, because of the fall and we're finite, find it hard to empathize with each other. God, on the other hand, as Craig shared this morning, has this agape love, has this self sacrificial love. God is other-orientated, and he's completely secure in himself. So each member of the Trinity gives of themselves and identifies fully with each other member of the Godhead. So the one major qualification for this, as I'm sure some of you have been thinking, is Jesus, right? When Jesus came to this earth, he added humanity to his divinity, which I'm sure we're going to talk about more next week, um, and he became fully human, right? However, because Jesus remains fully divine and never ceased to be God, he is still a, a divine human person. So this still applied before the incarnation and probably applies now that he's in heaven, but he's still fully human in heaven. So you can talk to me about that later if you like, <laughs> if, if your brain isn't fried by then. So in summary, one useful model to think of God as a society is a society, a complex of pers persons who, however, are one being. He is one being bound in love, and each person of the Trinity is unlimited by space. So he has instantaneous and unlimited communication, experiences and has experienced everything all the other members do, and is other-orientated, um, and the divine life throws, flows through each member of the Trinity. Did that blow your brain? It did me when I first read and started to think about our God is one God and three persons. And I love it when I get into some theology and read about these emerging from Scripture, these incredible reflections that, uh, where God's guided our understanding of Him because it just, it just makes me want to worship, you know, so I'm looking forward to the set of worship. Now, for the sake of time, I'm very sorry, but I've got too excited and we've gone too slow. Let's look at the practical application of all of this because this is so important. So, how does our understanding of who God is and our understanding of his Trinity affect our everyday lives? Well, the first thing I want to say is that, I don't know if you've thought about this, but our relationship with God is not actually a relationship with one person, right? Is this obvious? But if you actually start to think about it, it's actually a relationship with three divine persons, right? We have a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each is deserving of our praise and worship. And having a relationship with God is actually about being drawn further into intimacy with each member of the Godhead. 
Now, this isn't to say that we can't address God as one, because as we have seen, God is a unity and is one. So we can address God as one. We're not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. But we're also never alone. Have you thought about that? Like, you know, in our individualistic, real focused on individual Western thinking, it's kind of me and God, right? It can almost feel like an individualistic thing. But that's not the relationship we have with God. Since God is a divine community, we are loved by one God and three persons at the same time. So have a think about what that means. That means so much when you really start to think about it. Secondly, if God is a trinity, then this has implications for all of reality, right? If there was no God and no spiritual realm, then reality is ultimately and fundamentally physical, right? And the primary force holding everything together is electromagnetic, right? So that means that if atheism is true, our human relationships are just a freak chance of nature, you know, my love I feel for my wife isn't real. It's just some chemical reactions. It's just some cause and effect happening mechanic, mechanicistically that ultimately means nothing because I'm going to die. The universe is going to run out of energy. It means nothing relationships in the ultimate. And all that really counts is the laws of physics, right? That's the, that's the only thing that really means something. And why they're there, who knows. But if, if this doctrine of the Trinity is true, then reality isn't fundamentally physical. Reality is fundamentally social, right? Because God is a divine community of love, the ultimate reality is the love for the Father, has for the Son, has for the Holy Spirit, right? So ultimate reality is social. And what's the most powerful force that binds those members of the Trinity together and should ultimately bind all humans together that are willing? What is it? Love, right? That is the ultimate thing. Love is the ultimate meaning of life, the ultimate purpose. It's the very nature of God, right? That changes everything if that's true, doesn't it? If God is a trinity, not just one person, one God, but if he's a trinity. Ultimate reality is actually social. And that means that our relationship with God and each other is of ultimate and eternal significance. Um, and And our relationships aren't meaningless because not only, not only that, they're going to last forever. Have you ever thought about that? Like if I annoy you now because my sermon's going too long, like you're going to forgive me in heaven, we're going to be best friends forever, right? Even if I annoy you down on this planet. Likewise, the Christians that you find irritating and even the ones that you get on with the best, we're going to have perfect relationship with forever. And that leads on to the third point, is that because God is a has this incredible love, equality, you know, co-eternal, co-equal, and perfect communication and community within himself as a divine community, that's also our model of how we should live in Christian community, right? Because every person is of equal importance because God is co-eternal and co-equal. You know, we often take this for granted in Western um, society, you know, because Western society has stressed for a long time human equality and value. But as I said before, there's no basis for that in atheism. The only true firm foundation for human value and equality is the Christian Trinitarian understanding of God. You know, what does that mean in church? Well, that means in church that every person is valuable, that every person's gifts and perspective is important. Right? Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 25. He says, but God has put the body together 
giving greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Right? So as a church, if we're going to reflect this Trinitarian equality, then we're going to be very careful not to emulate the world. Right? By making, you know, what does the world do? And I'm not saying everyone in the world does this, but you're more valuable if you've got a job that's really important, right? If you contribute more to society. But in the church, as important as structure and leadership is, because the Bible talks a lot about that, it's always servant leadership that, um, that serves first, right? And in church, we've got to be careful that we don't get into, you know, titles like um, the Grand Reverend Pastor. Chris, you know, or, or the, the amazing, talented usher, you know what I mean? Like those titles, that self-importance, it's just our human nature for that to creep in and us to start to value people for what they can do rather than who they are. But just listen to what Paul said. Read that whole passage in 1 Corinthians 12. He says that God actually elevates those parts that lack honor because of our human nature and the fall and that. He actually elevates them in the church, right? So that, they have, so that all parts may be concerned with... Um, have equal concern for each other. And then finally, um, we're just going to do some questions here. So just talk about these for two minutes. But finally, the Trinity provides our ultimate model for Christian mission. So have a think about this first question for two minutes in peers, threes. You know, God is actually attempting to draw all of creation that are willing into this divine community of love. Right? So mission, outreach, evangelism is fundamentally relational. It's ultimately about God's work of drawing people into relationship with himself. And how, how does he do that? Well, he uses us to lovingly preach the gospel um, and show people their need for forgiveness and for relationship with God, but certainly not aggressively or harshly preaching at them because that goes against the whole heart of mission and what the whole thing's about. But, you know, sometimes it requires courage to do that. That's the heart, the heart of mission is, is a Trinitarian understanding of this whole creation. The whole story of redemption is about God drawing all that are willing back into this divine community of love. Now, I've got to say that that doesn't mean we become divine. We become who we're made to be, humans in relationship with God. But that, can you see my point? He's drawing us back into this community of love that he has in perfection. So talk about, to finish with, two minutes Three minutes with the person next to you. Uh, if you just want to, if you don't want to talk and you're, you're over it, just stare at the screen, and the person next to you will know that, or they'll see the steam coming out your ears, so they'll know not to talk to you. Um, but talk about that for two minutes, and then we'll finish. Any thoughts? Is there any like burning questions about something I've said, or any thoughts you guys had you'd like to share back, feedback to us? Either of those two questions spark any? How do you think our understanding is a divine, God is a divine community attempting to draw all of New Zealand into community with himself, change the way you see mission? Anyone want to say how they answered that? No one? What's that, sir? Intentional love. Thanks. It's awesome if you've got a wife that if no one says anything, she'll say something. Thanks, Sarah. That's great. It makes you feel better. Anyone got a burning question about what I've said that really didn't make sense? We're not having a Q&A, but I just wanted to feel the question. Yeah?
you say you couldn't understand? Yeah, sorry about that. We'll have a chat later if you like, and um, I'll try and explain it a little bit more. So, Cool, we'll do that, sounds good. All right, no, that's it. We've gone, sorry for going over time there. Hopefully um, that's given you some food for thought.